60 years ago last month, Scott Carpenter launched into space in his Mercury spacecraft called Aurora 7, becoming the second American to orbit the Earth. It was a flight that continues to divide opinions, so today we're going to have a look at what actually happened. Who was your favorite Mercury astronaut? Let us know on our social media pages at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And don't forget to leave us a review or drop us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. That really helps us out. But right now, enjoy episode 96 of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 96 of our podcast. My voice is a bit sore today. Uh, had a full weekend of gigs, you can probably hear, so I'll do my best to power through, but uh, apologies in advance for the croakiness. Um, but how are you doing, Emily? <laughs> I'm doing great. Yeah, I've uh, been working on a few things. I know I've written a few articles. Just go to the Celestis blog that I've done for Celestis.com. And I also did a, an article that had nothing to do with space. I reviewed the Elvis movie. Yeah, I'm excited by this. I'm excited by this a lot. Yeah, I, I saw it this weekend and I, I absolutely loved it. So I did a, a review for it. There are spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, you may want to skip the article, but it's Elvis's life. So that there's not many spoilers, but still, if you haven't seen the movie, you may want to skip it. This is not an ad. I was not paid by the Elvis people <laughs> to promote this movie at all, but I just thought it was amazing. Yeah, no, I'm excited about seeing it. I'm excited because Tom Hanks plays a bad guy, and I think that's yeah. such a change for him. We don't normally see that, do we? It was weird because I'm like, you know, you're used to seeing Tom Hanks as like these nice, you know, like... Jim Lovell, you know, that's who I, you know, you, uh, you know, Forrest Gump, you know, these really you know, sweet. <laughs> yeah, Woody. Yeah. Yeah. These really nice characters that have like this humanity, you know, and, and oh my God, he's really good too. Like he's very good at being a bad guy, which is chilling. Cause I'm like, does Tom Hanks have another side? Like none of us knew about because like, I believe the whole time he was like, Tom Parker. It was really good. So yeah, you all have to see it. it I just everything, the music, the the acting, it was just amazing. So I loved it. Yeah, definitely on my uh, my list of films to go and see, that's for sure. Right, Emily, it's time to crack on. So this week, we want to take a moment to talk about something that we should have probably covered last month. On May 24th, 1962, Scott Carpenter climbed into the Aurora 7 capsule, which was his uh, Mercury spacecraft, and launched atop an Atlas rocket. The mission lasted nearly five hours, and he completed three orbits of the Earth before returning back to Earth. However, it was far from a textbook flight, and it has been the subject of much discussion and finger-pointing ever since. As with all of these things, there are always 15 sides to every story, so we're going to try and 
let you know some of the different versions of what happened and also share our opinions, obviously. Uh, on my own part, today I've fallen down a massive rabbit hole <laughs> trying to research this because I think it's such a fascinating subject. subject. Um, so there's a couple of articles which I've read today which I'm definitely going to draw upon within what we talk about. And I may even quote them at various points. There'll be a link to one in the show notes, and that was written in 2013 by Amy Shearer Title. And the other one isn't online. It's by Francis French, our friend from Spaceflight Magazine back in 2003. Really, really interesting article, that one. Uh, I also reread a chapter of Into That Silent Sea, which is by Francis French and Colin Burgess, which also puts all of this into perspective as well. And that book is one you definitely should read. I'm not sure if you've read that one, Emily. I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. That's a classic. Yep. I've read it. Yep. So I suppose we should start by trying to put this flight into context, right? So it followed John Glenn's flight. I think it was just a redo of Glenn's flight with the um, science experiments added. So really, it was like the first science mission NASA ever flew, which is which is pretty cool. So uh, Carpenter, I guess, was our first scientist in space then. Yeah. And um, it, it kind of bears mentioning that uh, Carpenter was not the first choice to fly this mission. Unfortunately, a few weeks before the flight was supposed to take place, Deke Slayton who was going to fly the mission, and it was supposed to be called Delta-7, um, was sidelined due to atrial fibrillation. So he was disqualified from flying in space, period, by that point. So Carpenter was put you know, to the prime spot in that mission. And it's my personal belief <laughs> that this may have sort of been the seed of, of what... The discontent. Correct. Yeah, I didn't know how to put it politely. I think that may have been the seed of the discontent right there that some people had for Carpenter. Yeah, for sure. So it was just 11 weeks before the flight, um, which is no time at all for a mission that was as packed as it was. So Wally Shirar was the backup pilot for Deke Slayton, but Carpenter got given the flight anyway, which is odd, but it was because Carpenter had been back up to John Glenn's flight. So it was extremely well trained for a three orbit mission and and it was basically ready to go when John Glenn flew so the decision was made at that point i couldn't find anything saying who made that decision i'm sure that information exists somewhere but um, i mean this was before you had the astronaut office where deke slayton chose the crews right this is the start of that process so i'm not sure who actually made that decision but it certainly could have ruffled some feathers that's for sure yeah it's also worth pointing out at this point that Glenn's flight was deemed to be successful. And I suppose it was. He went into orbit and he came home. But there was a lot of problems with that Mercury flight, wasn't there? Yeah. The, the capsule wasn't a sure thing at this point. And so to load up a five-hour mission with just three orbits, with loads of science on a spacecraft which isn't proven to be that good yet, is a risk. Yeah. That's a risky decision. I, I think some are under the impression that when, you know, you design a spacecraft, you know, the first design is is it. And that's not true, especially with the first space flights, you know, human space flights. Like each Mercury mission was a little different. Obviously, on, on the second flight, you know, you had the, the thing where Grissom's hatch just blew off, you know, and he almost died. You know, he almost almost drowned. That was something that was figured out from the flights. Obviously... The problems that John Glenn ran into during his mission, you know, 
especially the issue near the end where they thought, oh my God, the heat shield's not attached or it's not attached properly. You know, that that was pretty terrifying. He did have a successful mission, but the spacecraft still had issues. You know, it wasn't 100% flight ready, I guess, but they were still figuring it out. They were still figuring out space flight by this point. I mean, Scott Carpenter was the sixth person to fly in space, period. Yeah. So it's not like they had a lot of tries beforehand, you know? Yeah. So really, they were just figuring it out. I think it's worth pointing out as well, again, the seeds of this discontent about this mission, that there was a battle going on, wasn't there, to do with this about who was really in control of these flights? Was it Mission Control, which was essentially run by Chris Craft at that time, or was it the astronaut on board? Who was the one making the decisions? Who was in control of the flight plan and all this kind of stuff? No one really knew how it worked. Now, there's still these kind of little battles, but these things are kind of worked out a little bit more, that people understand how the processes work within NASA, or they should do, really. But at this point, it was all new. They were making up. There was no rule book at that point, was there? It was being made as they were coming up to each flight. So there was this big battle going on. Who was in control? Especially after the Glenn flight, where Glenn wasn't told that he had the issue with the uh, with the heat shield until right at the end, when there was basically nothing he could do. He wasn't brought into the conversation about it, and he didn't like that. And Scott Carpenter and John Glenn were best mates. They were super close. Yeah. So you had a lot of these under the surface tensions existing between within both within the astronauts and between the astronauts and mission control and all kinds of things going on. I want to say by that point, the spacecraft had a little more control added to it that the, that the person flying it could take. It had a, a three axis, uh, like a joystick, like a control stick, which is something the astronauts really did want, you know, just in case the automatic system stopped working or didn't work properly, which is, which is understandable. I would want something like that too. Like, you know, you want that in your car. <laughs> you know, if if the computer stops working, you'd still like to be able to drive it home maybe and before you get it to the shop. I don't know. So let's just have a little look at exactly what they were trying to get Scott Carpenter to achieve on a three-orbit flight on an unproven spacecraft. This is a list, and it may not be the complete list, but it's a list of some of the things he was asked to do. So there was a depth perception test, which released a balloon... And he had to observe it uh, and say how far away he thought it was. It was attached to a tether. He, he had to do some experiments observing liquid in microgravity. There was a light meter tool he had to use to measure the visibility of flares which were being set off on the Earth. He had to take loads of weather photographs with different filters attached to his camera. He had to study the air glow layer in order to test this new joystick that, that Emily mentioned. One of the things he was asked to do was to flip the spacecraft upside down. Not that that really exists uh, in space, but so his yeah. head was pointing towards the Earth. And they were doing this to try and see if he experienced any disorientation. Uh, he also had to orientate the spacecraft to observe loads of different Earth landmarks, day and night horizon, and find certain stars in the sky to help with navigation. That's a lot. Yeah, I was about to say, that's three orbits. That's basically like you're just doing experiments the whole yeah. mission. And we know how difficult it is to work in space. They probably didn't then. But doing the most simple things in space can take longer than it would on Earth, right? Exactly. You know, and they probably, as you said, they probably didn't know how difficult it was to work in space. I mean, also, he's working at a pressure suit. Yeah. I'm not an expert on 
Mercury spacesuits. You probably know more about it than I do, but it couldn't have allowed for as much mobility as, say, like some of the Apollo spacesuits later that had like, you know, all the joints in it and inserted in it so they could collect rocks and stuff like that. Yeah, and it didn't exactly have much space in that spacecraft. It was a tiny little spacecraft. And as we mentioned earlier, he only had 11 weeks to actually train to do all this stuff. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, yeah. You got 11 weeks, you got five hours and you're, you know, you have no space and you're supposed to fly a spacecraft and do all these experiments at the same time. So that that really seems like an awful lot. And that's assuming that nothing goes wrong that you also have to deal with. Exactly. That's assuming everything goes fine. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, where we're now, what we're now going to talk about. Right. So right from the off, there were problems. And I'm going to quote from Francis French's article on this bit, because this article is really good at explaining exactly what happened in an easy way. So right from the off, the pitch horizon scanner, which, you know, if you've seen on an aeroplane, the the balls which have an horizon, they've got a black and a white bit, and you can see how level everything is. That started misbehaving and sending incorrect data to the autopilot. So uh, the, the quote is, not long after he began his busy schedule of science experiments, Carpenter noticed that his attitude was not what his instruments were indicating, and informed Mission Control about the problem. With so many science experiments to undertake, there was little time for him to think about it more, and he left it for Mission Control to decide how serious the problem was. Mm -hmm. And this information is all in the flight report. So it's fairly beyond contestable that he did this. He actually reported it. You can't argue with that. That's what happened. Yeah. So then there was the issue of fuel, and I think this is the the big issue with, with this flight, right? So essentially... By the end of the flight, he'd run out of fuel. Mm -hmm. And partly, as we've discussed, he had all these manoeuvres he had to do. That's always going to use fuel. But this new control stick was actually doing more than it was supposed to. Every time you moved it slightly, it used more fuel than it needed to and used the powerful thrusters rather than the smaller thrusters. So that used more fuels. He also experienced some of the same issues that John Glenn had with the autopilot. The Mercury capsule had two ways of flying, autopilot or manually. And both systems had their own fuel tank. But as a redundancy, in case one of those fuel tanks ran out, there was a way that you could use the other fuel tank if you'd run out of fuel. Yeah. However, there was a switch, which if it was in the wrong position, would mean that whatever system was being used would draw fuel from both tanks, doubling how much fuel was actually being used for each manoeuvre. This isn't ideal. And this happened on John Glenn's flight, and they didn't fix it for Scott Carpenter's flight, and both of them ended up in that mode. Yeah. I do remember reading that Carpenter was uh, trying to operate the fly-by-wire system uh, near the end of his mission, and for some reason, both systems were being used at the same time, but I don't believe that was his doing. I don't know. I don't think he planned on doing that. So obviously that used a pretty large portion of of the fuel. And that's exactly what happened with John Glenn as well. And it, it was said afterwards, it was no fault of the astronaut that those things have happened. And and here's the other thing. And again, I'm, I'm going to go back into quote the article from Francis French here. So whenever Carpenter tried to catch the problem with the malfunctioning autopilot, it was always a moment when it was working fine. Yeah, so he looked crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when he tried to devote time to troubleshoot the problem, he was reminded by the ground to push on with his, with his designated experiments. So, yeah, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, aren't you? Yeah. 
Pretty much. So when we then get back to Mission Control, here's again from Francis. Mission Control believed that the problem might be malfunctioning thrusters and concentrated their effort on checking those, not realising where the problem really lay. When they asked Carpenter to look at his alignment, it was over a featureless ocean on the night side of Earth, where there was very few visual references he could use to check the craft's alignment. Okay, yeah, so he wasn't going to see anything. If I've never <laughs> no. been to space, but I'm sure if you're trying to look at the ocean over space during the dark, you know, the night side, uh, the night part of the orbit, you're not going to see anything. No. <laughs> yeah, you're really not, are you? Um, so on top of that, his spacesuit was also overheating, so he had sweat stinging his eyes, and he carried on all the tests. In fact, in Moonshot, which is a book by Deke Slayton and Al Shepard, they said that Carpenter, and a quote, ran through his scientific program with skilled aplomb. And then, he clearly got got the work done. Anyway, then came time for him to fire his retro rockets, which are the, the rockets that are on the spacecraft, which help slow you down and bring you back to Earth. And uh, it was at this point when they realized how bad his alignment was. And he had to use his own pilot skill to make sure he was pointing in the right direction because the instruments that were on the panel in front of him weren't reading what they should have been reading. Yeah, they weren't doing their job. And... I also want to say, um, again, if I got this wrong, somebody please kindly, politely email us or, or point it out on Twitter or wherever, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I also believe the thrusters, the retrofire rockets underperformed as well, which he wouldn't wouldn't have been aware of or in charge of. So I think that was another reason why he was a little off so they didn't fire automatically as well so he had yep. to do, he had to do that manually that's another thing he had to do that wasn't planned so yeah so many things to, that he's he had to be doing uh and as a result he was a few seconds late on actually pressing the button which at the speeds he's traveling obviously yeah. means he's going to be traveling a lot further in distance so he got through the atmosphere and the craft, the spacecraft ran out of fuel at 100,000 feet, which is 75,000 feet before the parachutes were due to open. Uh, and he was 250 miles away from his target when he splashed down. Uh, and he had to wait in a life raft in the Atlantic Ocean for about an hour, which is pretty yeah. crazy, right? Yeah. And at the time, uh, Walter Cronkite on uh, CBS News at the time basically was like, it looks like we may have lost an astronaut because they couldn't find him. Yeah, crazy. They didn't know if he was alive, you know, or, or what. But they did find him within about an hour, and he was floating on his life raft. Uh, I think he was a little dehydrated, but other than that, he was fine. So he made it. Yeah. That's all that matters. Yeah, it is all that matters. And then we get into the aftermath of the flight, and I'm sure Emily's got some strong opinions on this. But essentially, he was then depicted as a failure of an astronaut, someone who didn't know how to pilot uh, the, the spacecraft, someone that was out of their depth. Uh, and he's been portrayed as someone who would rather spend time looking at the stars uh, and daydreaming than actually doing the work he was supposed to be doing and essentially nearly killed himself in the process, which is basically wrong and unfair. Yeah, Kraft did write a book called Flight in 2001. It was published. Um, there's a whole friggin' chapter in the book called The Man Malfunctioned, which was about Carpenter's flight. As much as I respect Chris Craft as the father of Mission Control, I, I I think he shouldn't have included that in his book. It, it really sort of brought my feelings about him a little down. I thought it was very vindictive for 
no reason. I think maybe a more fair way of looking at it would be that, okay, Carpenter may have made a couple mistakes, but there were also a lot of factors that he was not able to help either. I don't think his mistakes were any worse than some other things that happened during other space missions. To me, I think it's personal. I really do. Yeah. This is my opinion. Others are free to have their own opinion. I believe a lot of people, I don't think it was the astronauts as much as some of the the people maybe up in, you know, administration. I believe some people were frankly pissed off that Deke Slayton didn't get to fly. And, you know, Deke Slayton and Scott Carpenter were very different people. I mean, I think Deke Slayton was more of a engineer type. Whereas uh, Carpenter was kind of an anomaly. You know, he was very scientifically minded, which was not popular in those days. He was also kind of a hippie. Like, there's an article about him in Life magazine, and he's he's playing a guitar. You know, <laughs> just stuff that to some NASA brass was probably not appropriate for an astronaut. You know, like um, his wife, Reen Carpenter, was a feminist, you know, very outspoken, very brilliant woman. Um, in her own right, you know, and she insisted when Scott went to space that she would write the article in Life magazine about it. And she did. And it's a great article, you know, and I think while obviously people had respect for Carpenter and I think his colleagues liked him, I think some of the upper management was just like, this guy is a hippie. He just didn't have the right image or something like that. And I think, you know, people were also they wanted Dick to fly. I think it was kind of personal because, you know, their boy didn't go. Somebody else did. And that's not me putting Deke down or anything like that. Of course, we know later Deke did get an opportunity to fly. And Slayton, of course, is should also be considered, you know, a great space pioneer as well. But yeah, I, I think it was really just personal. I, I think also some people do not vibe well with each other, <laughs> to say the least. I think Kraft and Carpenter just for some reason, oil and water, don't know why, don't really care why, but it just is what it is, and I think that really came out in Kraft's book. If you look at Kraft's career, he did, unfortunately, I'm probably going to get slammed by a lot of people for saying this, but he had a habit, if he felt somebody had embarrassed NASA or embarrassed Mission Control, even if it had nothing whatsoever to do with them, he would take it personally and he would take it out on him. Like, look at Apollo 7, um, what happened to them. That was all Wally complaining you know most of it was wally complaining and none of them flew again and look at what happened to apollo 15 you know i mean (laughs) i won't get into that here but none of them flew again you know and just stuff like that you know i just think he kind of had a vindictive side that sucks a lot of ego at play from a lot of different sides though isn't there you've got a lot of big alpha characters who all want to be in control and a lot of them aren't very big people. <laughs> yeah. I know that sounds stupid, but you've got a lot of small small men who want to be big people. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that going on as well. Obviously, I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what happened. But I think the frustrating thing is that Kraft's account seems to be the one that is the one that seems to be getting the most traction in the history books. Like Most people seem to be accepting his version of events, which I don't think is fair. I think if you want to tell Kraft's side of the story uh, alongside what's in the flight report or alongside Scott Carpenter's version of events, that's fine. I think it's an interesting perspective uh, and I think you learn something about what was going on behind the scenes as we've discussed. But I don't think it's 
an accurate reflection of what really happened in the flight. And I want to read one more quote from Francis French's article uh, from Spaceflight magazine, because I think this one really does sum it up. Yep. Carpenter felt like Kraft had completely missed the point. Carpenter successfully brought home a spacecraft which had fuel, thruster, and navigational instrument problems during a flight that was packed in not only these unexpected tests of pilot and spacecraft, but also an unprecedented range of successful science experiments. He had not made a perfect by-the-book re-entry, but had flown a manual-controlled plunge through the atmosphere and brought himself, the spacecraft, and the experiments back in one piece, proving once again the worth of a test pilot at the centre of the program. So that's Scott Carpenter's thoughts on what happened as told by Francis French in this article having interviewed Scott Carpenter about it. I can see that side of it as well. Yeah. You had all these problems, you had all these experiments and yet still he came home safe because that re-entry that required his skill set to make sure that he was pointing roughly in the right direction and in fairness to Carpenter he also does credit the design of, uh, and the shape of the Mercury craft which meant you did have a margin of error of what angle you needed to enter the atmosphere. Yes, he wasn't at the one that they hoped he would be at, but he was close enough and there was enough margin of error there. But he had to do that using just his pilot senses. He couldn't rely on his instruments. That's crazy. We don't see that in modern spaceflight, yeah. really. We, that's not something we see anymore. To see that have, having to have happened 60 years ago and he survived to tell the story is a credit to him as well as other people, but it's a credit to him. And I don't think he should be demonised because it went slightly wrong. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, gosh, I, I think others have already written articles on this and there's some pretty good articles about this out there. But uh, there's that part of me that's like, man, I want to write about this because there are so many incident enabling factors in this story of, yeah. of what contributed to the belief that he messed up, you know? And I, I really think, and oh my God, I'm not going to say the word. I'm not going to say the word. I'm not going to say the word. I promise. Does it begin with M and end in Y? Yes. I, I, think, <laughs> I think part of it is the same reason that 11, 12 years later, certain people were accused of during, doing certain things in space. I think it was workflow issues, partly. I mean, they loaded him up with a lot of science experiments, which is cool. And, it, and he loved it. He, he loved that he was doing that. Yeah. He really enjoyed that. He was that kind of mind. He wanted that kind of thing. Some yeah. of the others didn't want that, but he did. And I think it's a testament to his brilliance that he accomplished all those things. But at the same time... If I were in mission planning and, you know, somebody was flying a, a relatively new spacecraft that it had problems on the last mission, you know, we were really still testing it out. I may not assign all these scientific experiments. I would be concerned that it would cause issues with them doing their main job, which is not dying. I don't yeah. know. That's how I feel. I think some of it had to do with the workflow issues. I think he was probably... I think he performed admirably, but I think they gave him too much damn work to do. I really think that. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And what's interesting is that we still see this problem happen today. The Axiom 1 flight that took place a few months back now, the first fully commercial crew to go to the International Space Station, private crew, private company, had a former NASA astronaut on board, but they still allocated too much time to doing work. They tried to do too much. 60 years on, we're still seeing this problem. And at the time, 
it took NASA a while to even attempt to do this much stuff. It was way later in the Gemini program before they loaded up a mission with as much science. And those flights were a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, they had the luxury of time. He only had three orbits, yeah. which is really... Three Nothing. orbits is less than like a work day. You know, less than yeah, an eight-hour yeah. work day. Whoever planned the mission out and, you know, I, I don't want to demonize those people, but at the same time, you know, they probably could have thought thought it out a little better. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And let's talk about what he did after. He then became an aquanaut. Yes. Which is pretty cool. So... He thought that the harshness of living in the ocean rivaled the harshness of living and working in space. And he did some deep sea living and lots of diving and working underwater. And as a result of what he learned on that, he brought that back to NASA. Now, Buzz Aldrin is often credited as being the one to help revolutionize how NASA did mm -hmm. spacewalks, but actually Scott Carpenter was also really integral in this. He learned from doing his deep sea stuff that having handholds was really important and the importance of, you know, training in water. So he was one of the people that really was instrumental in setting up the neutral buoyancy lab. Again, it always gets credited to Buzz Aldrin, as we talked about in the Gemini thing, but Scott Carpenter had a massive part to play in that, and that often gets wiped out of the history books, which I think is, again, a little bit unfair. Yeah, I think Scott Carpenter, he's the only Mercury astronaut that I ever met. Oh, my God. It was like the thrill of one of the thrills of the lifetime. I mean, I've, I've been blessed to see a lot of stuff, but he was very gracious. Like, there was no... I'm not going to mention certain names, but there was no ego. I mean, I went up to him and, uh, you know, I was like, sir, you know, you're one of the you're one of my inspirations for wanting to join the Navy. Because I remember as a kid reading about C-Lab before I knew he was an astronaut. Dead serious. I always thought, man, I want to be an aquanaut and I am the world's worst swimmer. But still, I mean, that always kind of was something like, man, if you join the Navy, you could you could see stuff like that. I remember, you know, I sat by him because at that point he he couldn't really it was about a year before he passed away and he, he couldn't really walk well. He was sitting. I sat by him and I just was like, thank you. You know, you really inspired me to join the military. And He was the, as gracious and as kind and very soft spoken. I was very surprised. I, I guess I was expecting him to be like Alan Shepard. I don't know, but. He was just awesome, and that's somebody who I, I wish was still around. Everybody I know who talked to him just thought he was absolutely the kindest, most gracious person. I hope Dave and I talking about this will contribute to his legacy and people knowing that he actually did a pretty good job. He did do a good job. You know what I found interesting there is that you used the word gracious in describing his personality when you met him, and from all the reading I've done today... I think the word grace has got to be associated with Scott Carpenter. You look at all the ways that he was attacked oh, yeah. by people that were his peers. You know, they attacked his character. They attacked his abilities as a pilot, as an astronaut, uh, and his intelligence. And the craft book in particular, I mean, that's really, really nasty. And he didn't rise to it. So he did write a book the year after Crafts came out. He did have his response. Uh, it's called For Spacious Skies. And he wrote it with his daughter, Christova. But it's not an attack on Craft. It's just him telling his story. Uh, and I think that is showing the graciousness that you talked about, Emily. He didn't have a chapter called, you know, 
Chris Kraft <laughs> malfunctioned. He didn't have that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kraft dinners. Kraft uh, dinner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah anything like that. There yeah. could have been loads of things he could have done, and he d- he didn't do it. Yeah, you got to give him credit because if somebody wrote a chapter about me in a book that awful, I, I would have just called the lawyer. I wouldn't have even. <laughs> I would have been like, "We're just gonna sue you. Like, we're not even gonna yeah. play." But I felt I agree. I feel like the way he dealt with that was really just very restrained but very classy and elegant sometimes i'll think like what are the worst ideas certain people in spaceflight have ever had and i think chris craft writing that chapter was one of them i I really sort of lost some respect for him reading that because i'm like it's okay if you don't like them you don't have to like anybody but don't try and rewrite history yeah because what he wrote in that chapter was a direct contradiction to what was in the official flight report and i'm fairly sure in his position he would have been involved in the flight report either consulted or signing off on it listeners correct me if i'm wrong there i'm sure you know but to then 40 years later decide i'm gonna write my own version of events doesn't make sense yeah i got the distinct feeling when i read that for the first time that he was just hating like he just didn't like him for whatever reason who knows i don't know why they're both dead. I can't ask either of them why. Something would have gone down, wouldn't it, somewhere? Who knows? Yeah, but who maybe, knows? Maybe it didn't. Maybe it was just a, a clash. Yeah, maybe something didn't go down. Exactly. But, you know, he just didn't like them, you know? And it, it was like Twitter before Twitter or something like that. Well, I was I was about to say that. If social media if it had existed back in, even in the early noughties and... Scott Carpenter, I doubt, wouldn't have been on there. But if he had been and Chris Craft was also on there, imagine a world. I mean, that's a whole other alternate history thing we could <laughs> do, couldn't it? Uh, that would have been. But imagine if if Chris Craft put up a blog post with a comment section slagging off Scott Carpenter. I don't think Scott Carpenter would have even responded. I don't think he would have read the comments. I don't think he would have cared. He would have just gone about his business. That's the impression I get from him. Yeah. Uh, and from from the accounts of people that I knew that met him and interviewed him and things like that. He got to tell his story. He was happy to do that. I'm sure behind the scenes, maybe he was really angry with, yeah. with the fact that his, his character had been assassinated in the way that it had yeah, done. It was a smear campaign, in my opinion. Yeah, but he just didn't, he didn't react in a, in a way that a lot of people think you and I perhaps would have done yeah uh, so I think he, he deserves credit for that and I think his his side of the story deserves to be told because of that anyway uh, Joe, on, a, on a complete unrelated thing my favorite photos of the Mercury era all are of Scott Carpenter yeah I think he was the most iconic looking of all the seven astronauts he was he was he uh was very fit he was really handsome he uh he had uh that look about him where he he looked like he was just tailor made. He looked like like a TV version of an astronaut. He really did. And uh, there's a photo I like of him, and I haven't seen it for years, where he's diving in the water in his uh, Mercury suit in the silver suit. Yeah. And I just think it's so cool. I love it because he's like he was like the original Aquaman. He was oh my gosh. <laughs> so I hope people have learned something from this. But I think it's time to get going with the news, perhaps. And if you have your own thoughts on this period of history, please let us know. We'd love to love to hear what your th- thoughts are. I have the fireflies. So since we last recorded, there have been three orbital launches, one in French Guiana, 
and two in China. As always, there'll be full info of the payloads and videos if they're available, uh, and they can be found in our show notes, which you can find on spaceandthingspodcast.com or click in the link in the description of this podcast on your podcast platform. There has also been the first of three sounding rockets launched from the Northern Territory of Australia for NASA. And it's the first time that NASA has conducted a rocket launch from a commercial facility outside of the United States, which is pretty crazy. Sounding rockets, for those who don't know, are suborbital launches which do science experiments. That's really cool. That that's neat. Yeah, I thought you'd like that story. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to like about that story. Yeah. Did they go upside down though? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> All of our listeners are like, we're done. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, uh, NASA has announced that the wet dress rehearsal for the Artemis One rocket was a success and that they will not conduct another. They have now began uh, prepping for launch and the first launch window will open in August. This huge rocket will take an uncrewed Orion spacecraft on a mission around the moon. The first launch of the Artemis program, which will aim to put humans back on the moon over the next few years. So it'll be the first launch. If it does happen in August, uh, bring lots of water and sunscreen because it's already boiling in Florida. So, of course, yeah. just a heads up. Yeah. So my favorite story of this week comes from a joint mission by the European Space Agency, ESA, and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA. The BepiColombo mission has performed its second close flyby of Mercury, and it sent back some really amazing images of the planet. Uh, you'd be forgiven to think that they're photos of the moon as they show a grey surface covered in craters, but they're not. It's Mercury. The spacecraft got within 125 miles of the surface Wow! in the second of six flybys as it performs a really huge manoeuvre to place itself in orbit of Mercury. It's, it's actually quite difficult to get to Mercury because the sun's gravity speeds up any spacecraft that get close. So they're using multiple flybys... Uh, which are designed to remove energy and speed from the trajectory to place it into the orbit. I'm really glad I didn't have to work out the maths uh, for that manoeuvre. Or, sorry, the math f for for that manoeuvre. Sorry to our American listeners, in case you got confused there. <laughs> yeah, somebody sent me the pictures from that flyby, and I thought it was the moon. It's crazy, isn't they it? They were like, no, no, look closer. And I was like... Oh, that's Mercury. That's not the moon. Yeah, you can tell it's smaller. You can tell it, it, it's the curve of, of the planet is definitely smaller than the moon. But it, the surface looks just like the moon, doesn't it? Yeah, it was really strange. Very strange. Yeah. And while we're talking about scientific space probes, the James Webb Space Telescope has started performing its scientific works and will be receiving the first operational images on July 12th. We have no idea what these images will be or what they'll look like, but it's all getting rather exciting after years of development and six months of being in space. Uh, we're finally going to start seeing what this telescope is capable of. Yeah, it's been a lot of talk, but we're finally going to start seeing results. It's exciting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm really excited i'm like oh my god what's this gonna look like and finally you may remember when the world was getting rather crazy about a rogue rocket which was about to crash into the moon back in march there was much speculation about who the rocket belonged to and i'm still not sure we know but finally the crash site has been found on the far side of the moon by nasa's lunar reconnaissance orbiter no doubt that this will now become a key objective for future missions to the moon <laughs> to explore this site and find out exactly what this rocket is. I still can't believe it's had that much airtime. 
this rocket. I know. And I know we've given it, but we've always done it in jest because it's such a ridiculous story. Back in the headlines once again. I want to be on the first celestial space flight that just crashes into the site where that rocket is so I can be... <laughs> So I could be at home with the rocket that I have talked this much about. So I don't, I'll be dead. I'm not going to know about it. So why not? Hey, congratulations. This is real good. That's it for this week. We hope you've all been keeping well. And thank you again for all your support. Please keep hitting the share button and getting in touch with us, uh, discussing your thoughts. We've had some interesting responses and we'd love to hear from you, whether uh, you agree with us or not? I, I imagine today's episode might be the same. Yeah, I personally really enjoy the conversations and I learn a lot from engaging with our listeners. So please do get in touch. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>